Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. Welcome to Packet Pushes. This is the heavy networking channel on our podcast network. From time to time, we've published podcasts on the future of networking, where we interview and discuss the longer term future of networking. Less about today, much more about tomorrow. Today, I have a special guest, Nick McEwen, who is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at Stanford University. But he's also been working in high-speed switching and router designs for a very long time and would be very well known to many people in many places. I'm not so sure he's a household name because he kind of works in that core of the industry, but not necessarily as a face of anything because he actually does real work. He has been, however, a key person behind the software-defined movement. Professor McEwen has been a supervisor of many students who later became startup founders that moved SDN from still does nothing according to incumbent vendor executives, to the software-centered networking vision that we have today. He's actually been a key mover and shaker in there, and hopefully we'll get into some of his some of the history of how that came about and why that impacts the future. Now, also importantly is Nick will be receiving the IEEE Alexander Graham Bell Medal in May 2021 for his contributions to the internet. I think I want to start with that, Nick. Welcome to Packet Pushes. Thank you for taking the time to join us. What is the IEEE Alexander Graham Bell Medal? Is that a special club? Uh, thanks for having me here today, Greg. It's great to be back. Uh, we've, we've chatted a number of times before. It's always uh, it's always fun. The Alexander Graham Bell Medal, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I was teasing the IEEE that... Uh, when when I won the medal, they they didn't give me a phone call on Alexander Graham Bell's uh, uh, network. They sent me an email, <laughs> and I was sort of thinking how wonderfully beautifully ironic this was. So would would he have turned in his grave the the notorious AGB, uh, or would he have actually been super proud that as someone who had pioneered modern communication system, a global communication system, would he want, would he wanted to have seen it uh, displaced by the modern internet? And my guess from the little that I know about him is that he would have been incredibly proud to see what has become of communications these days. So it, uh, it's a great honor. It's such a transition. Like when I started in technology all those years ago, we were still doing telephony and using analog signaling in the local loop. So it was literally a signal modulated onto a pulse, onto a current loop, remember? And oh, in my lifetime, we've gone from current loop telephony to digital telephony to completely digital signaling. And I think, yes, like you, I suspect uh, that anybody who is involved in that sort of innovation cycle would want to be proud of that they started a movement that went in a completely unknown direction. How could you imagine digital signaling when you were doing current loop modulation? When I first started teaching about uh, networks, maybe 25 years ago, when I joined Stanford, the course would begin with circuit switching, of mm. course, because yep. the network that everybody knew at that time was the telephone network. You'd pick up the phone, you'd place a, place a call, a circuit would be created, and at the end, it would be removed. And so that, that seemed like the ideal, perfect starting point to teach students. Hmm. Uh, you can't do that anymore because most students don't own a conventional phone that works in that way. Nowadays, it's something you just hit a, someone on your contacts list, and then magically they're speaking. And you know, a significant part of that is packet-based. So 
it's not actually a good uh, good comparison point anymore. Um, and so we've had to change the way that we teach. That would be really odd. One of the big things that you've been involved with in the transition to open networking has been ASIC design. I'm going to jump forward a little here a little bit, just indulge us. But when you start talking about ASIC design and cut through switches and fabrics and that sort of stuff, you really do need to have a sense of analog switching before you can talk about digital switching or am I being old fashioned as well? Well, of course, out at the edge of the chip where it's interfacing to the outside world, it's essentially analog. Even though the the pulses and the signals are arriving as encoded digital signals, they're in pretty gruesome shape by the time they show up at the edge of the chip. Yeah. And so, all of with all of the coding and the, the the that takes place prior to and then after the analog to digital conversion that turns it back into the digital signal for processing within the chip. Yeah, that's kind of analogish. It's not my area of expertise, fortunately. Yeah. There are people around that do that for a living. You know, a modern uh, high-speed serial link design that's operating at over 100 gigabits per second, there'll be a team of a couple of hundred people working on just developing a link like that. It's incredibly complex and uh, very clever technology. I remember I worked with a a person who was a chip designer, and we spent some time just talking over coffee and during lunch over a period of time of working on another project. And he was explaining how the ASICs and how you've got to sync the current inside of the chip. So when you're actually down to the transistor level inside of the chip, the ability to disperse the current flows becomes very, very difficult. As a clock rate increases, you get this amazing, like it felt like magic talking to this guy about that analog technology that goes on inside a chip. Well, if you think about the speed of a modern switching chip, that may, you know, it's a few hundred watts and it's operating off you know, less than a volt of uh, a, a supply voltage. So there's hundreds of amps that are switching yeah. at speeds of a you know, less than a nanosecond because of the clock rate of these devices. So the, the transient current changes and therefore, therefore power changes that are taking place across that chip are just <laughs> mind-boggling. <laughs> Imagine just what happens when you switch it on. It will go for within a few microseconds from being completely off to completely powered on with hundreds of amps and uh you know you got you got a whole bunch of those and you got to start uh, alerting your local electricity company before you switch a bunch of these on it's boggling right well let, since we've already talked about this uh you were recently involved with barefoot networks and the tofino the programmable asset there and the idea that your switch didn't have a fixed pipeline but had a fully programmable pipeline up until the tofino asset came out we were stuck with ASICs that sort of had like a couple of manipulations on the data flow through on the packet format or the frame format. And then you came out with the Tofino as part of a partnership there. Um, I guess the question that I wanted to ask there is we've seen a real transition in the way merchant silicon works and that whole industry. Now that Tofino is, is, is homed at Intel, and I think that's a good home for the technology, a couple of questions. One is, is the pace of change around silicon sufficient? Is the innovation cycle there enough or are we going to retrograde back to a fixed format and good enough is good enough? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. So when we started working on the programmable switching pipeline, you know, it was back in about 2010 when uh, we started a joint research project between Stanford and TI. And at the time, TI was still making a lot of the switching silicon 
for on behalf of companies like Cisco and others who are building building switching ASICs. And you know, we'd observe that for 15, 20 years, uh, the switching silicon was essentially fixed function. And by that time, a typical fixed function switch would have 40, 45 protocols and features that it would support. And um, the, the question uh, didn't even seem to be in the air. Could you replace those with something that's programmable? Because the conventional wisdom was it would necessarily consume a lot more power. Mm. It would run slower. And uh, the, the the area would be bigger and it would cost more. That was the sort of the conventional thinking. And, and I thought the same thing too. Mm-hmm. And we were really just starting to, at, at the time to ask the question, you know, what would be the cost? What would be the reduction in performance, the increase in the power, the increase in area and cost? And uh, so we went into it with an open mind as a, as a kind of a science experiment, as a research experiment at the university. And it was during that time that our eyes began to open because it was, uh, you know, we'd, we'd guessed that it would be something like a 25% penalty. That mm-hmm. was our thought at the, at the time. We didn't really have much evidence to support it. But as we went into it, we were we were realizing that the difference between a fixed function and a, and a programmable switching device is much less than you would think. They both based on a pipeline. They have to have yeah, a pipeline because you have to be processing multiple chips at the same time. Mm-hmm. They have to have the same IO. They have to have the same ability to talk to the outside world because that's the same. And, they and today we have all the same protocols. That's One right. of the things and that's happened, they, you know, yeah. 20 years ago, we had IPX and NetBIOS and a range of other protocols which have all passed. And in some senses, the ASICs should have gotten simpler and cheaper as we shifted into less and less protocols, but it didn't. No. And I was a bit curious about this to start with, too. It had been a while since I'd been involved in the the, the switch ASIC part of the industry. And mm. so I was kind of a bit curious about what protocols people were using. And it's true that within individual hyperscaler data centers, they tend to use a very small number. And, uh, you know, my guess would be between five and 10 protocols. Of course, they're mm. using IP. And, and Ethernet and probably yep. IPv6 and a few other things that they need to they need to have as support. They may have VXLAN and things like this. But the interesting thing is that most of them have shoehorned something special into some other protocol, whether you know MPLS yeah. or yeah. something like this. And uh, so in practice, if you're building a fixed function ASIC, you need to support the union, the superset of all of their features, which is why you see these kind of uh, kitchen sink type fixed function devices that mm. contain a lot of the features that everybody needs, even though any one individual hyperscaler may only need five or six of them for themselves. And so they're then kind of lumbered with the power and area and cost of all of these other protocols that they don't even use. Multicast, for example. Yeah, they could be multicast. That's right. Because you have to allocate a certain amount of the die to a packet duplicator, which has to be able to duplicate. But if you're a cloud provider, the last thing you want is a multicast engine. Yeah, almost no hyperscalers have uh, have much support for for multicast. That's correct, and so they can dispense with that. The question is, does the chip that they're buying need to sell into a market where that needs to be supported? In which case, you get it whether you want it or not. Right. And so, one of the things that we found out was that many of the features that were causing problems, in other words, many of the networking failures that were happening inside hyperscalers, were happening on features that they didn't even know they had running in their network. Mm-hmm because the fixed function ASIC was supporting it. So once we started providing them, this was a number of years later, with programmable switch chips, 
one of the first things they did was they went and threw out all the ones they didn't want. So if they only needed five features running in their network, they just compiled five features. They just wrote the P4 program that described those five features. Yeah. And then all the other ones they didn't need, they didn't run in their network. And then they're not sitting there as a liability because when they when they go wrong, they find, oh my gosh, I don't have anyone that has the expertise in multicast or some obscure version of, of, of some protocol that I haven't, I haven't seen before. And so they don't have to worry about that. Well, one of the interesting things is that CloudScale the, the at scale companies are actually starting to use the programmable features to stop using standardized packet formats. So within their networks, they're actually moving to use their own, uh, I don't know if it's frame formats or packet formats. Like, it, it, is that because uh, I'm not that au fait with what they're happening, but they're actually defining their own data formats for the packets flying across their network? Correct. So, one of the most common things that, that, gets done or gets uh, one of the most common applications of the programmable switching silicon is for telemetry. And uh, so telemetry would always sort of puzzle me as to why it was that most networks today still run and are debugged using ping and trace route, the same things that we've been using for decades. Why was it that when every switch, router, firewall, load balancer in the network, it knows the path the packets take because it went through. Mm -hmm. It knows the time at which it arrived. It knows how long it queued, how long it was waiting. Why on earth wasn't this information available at the edge of the network to the poor people that had to actually try and figure out how to make all of this work, particularly at scale? That's the federated networking problem. Everybody has to speak exactly the same. So if I'm going to add metadata to a packet, every switch in the path has to add the metadata, right? That's right. And so you and I talked about this before, which is, you know, one of the first things that we found when people were actually had had that programmability in their hands, it was like, whoa, I can actually put some of this metadata that the switch already knows. How long did this packet queue waiting mm-hmm. for waiting waiting for its turn to leave? The thing that would indicate whether there was congestion, or what was the path it took, which tells me why the packet is at a particular location in in the network. And so these these then became available for people to add into the packets, and so they did. Right. Uh, we gave them some starting code, but actually in practice, many people end up defining it in ways that are particular to them because they are the ones. And I mean, this is really the essence of it. Only those who own and operate networks at huge scale know how to operate networks at huge scale. So if they need to measure yeah. something, then they will figure out how to do it and they will figure out where to put that data. It's taken them a while, but I think it's but I think the there is a reward being reaped by the average network engineer where the flexible pipelines that you pioneered around Tofino are now arriving in traditional ASIC. So when you look at something like what's coming out from Broadcom and Marvell, they may not have fully programmable pipelines, but they certainly have a lot deeper programmable pipelines. Now, we're talking five-stage or seven-stage of programmability inside of those ASICs, and they're doing more to expose APIs so that the NOSs can do more with packet manipulation. Yep. I'm, I'm a researcher. I love to bring better things to the industry. And if, as a consequence, this has influenced others to do similar things, mm. maybe someone will do better things. Uh, that's all wonderful. Because what it was really about was shifting an industry that uh, had been thinking in terms of fixed function and bringing that programmability into the network with the goal the- eventually with the goal eventually of allowing for programmability from end to end, right? So this is the kind of the, in a way, the holy grail. Can you make the entire processing pipeline from the application to application through the network programmable by the infrastructure owner? So let me ask you this question. I'm a big fan of data processing units or smart NICs, this idea that the smart NIC becomes a computer that's attached to the PCI bus. 
as well as a switch. So we're seeing smart necks come out with eight ARM cores or 16 ARM cores and with SSDs on board. And we're talking operating systems on the smart necks built around Sonic or um, there are vendors out there developing operating systems for the NIC so that you can host firewall apps and threat detection apps and uh, telemetry apps. Is that something that you've thought about? Do you see an evolution there? Do you see a path forward? I think it's inevitably going in that direction, particularly in the hyperscalers. Hmm. And in the hyperscalers, it gives them the ability to do that packet processing, some of the offload that's really part of the infrastructure. Because mm-hmm. from their perspective, what they want to do is to be able to rent out those, you know, fantastic CPUs that are sitting the other side of the PCI Express. They want to be able, they want to be able to, to rent those out to their customers. And so anything that they can put down into the SmartNIC can give them the ability to get that right. It's mm-hmm. in a protected area that is away from their customer's code because the customer, you know, you need the 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 entire system to be reliable and to have a sort of a root of trust that's typically out on the smart neck. That way you can protect all of those functions, optimize them, and then leave everything else for the customer for the, yeah. you know, and that's what the business, that's what the business is all we about. So it's, it's it, inevitable. It, it is inevitable. Ine- I think I agree with you. I think it's inevitable, although the evolution is going to be unclear. How quickly do we see this break free? Like the cloud scalers, I think, will leap on it early because there's so much in it for them, squeezing 20, 30% more out of their server estate by putting the CPU cycles that were dedicated to I.O. or storage computation or, you know, other data throughputs, putting that onto a, a, a NIC, uh, you know, a DPU, uh, just suddenly increases the available a state to sell to customers very quickly. Does that evolution look smooth to you? Or is there some sort of punctuated equilibrium that's going to, the world's going to have to change to adopt it? Well, the the the, the first was uh, AWS with mm. Nitro. And Nitro is you know famous now for having really sort of paved the way for others to follow. And you're probably familiar with a number of mm. startups that have gone down this path as well. And so, uh, and a number of the other hyperscalers have been looking to deploy either their own or ones that they would they, they would buy commercially. So everyone is looking at it. Everyone is thinking about it. At the moment, there isn't a uniform common way to do it. Mm. And I think that just represents the fact that it's early on. Everyone is trying to figure out what belongs there and what doesn't. So probably the early ones will err on the side of having a little bit more flexibility than is than is needed because there's not you know not really sure what belongs there it will become clearer over time as uh, everyone settles on the approach that they that, that they prefer that's happening at the hyperscalers in the US it's also happening in China everybody looking for what exactly to put out on that smart neck but now in the meantime i think what's going to happen is uh, there will be uh, a lot of learning and observing that will take place. The industry will shake up around this. But um, as this device becomes you know, more key and central to how the different computing and memory and storage devices are interconnected with each other, all sort of all through that, all through that smart neck device, you know, it's going to get a lot of attention over the next few years. I think the interesting thing here is that the, because the DPUs are programmable and because our switches are programmable, we can actually make a lot of change that in historically we wouldn't have been possible. So I can actually start with today's smart NICs and they can actually last a lot longer for a substantial amount of modification. So if I want to change my packet framing to be some sort of proprietary or I want to extend the header to carry more metadata like you do with INT, you know, integrated network telemetry, 
I think the programmability of this makes it far more flexible and evolutionary. Whereas before we had this, if I look back in history to my sort of traditional, we had this punctuated equilibrium approach, which is there'd be this gestation where everybody agreed that MPLS was an idea, tag switching was a thing. And then all of a sudden everybody would agree and then all these products would arrive on the market. Whereas now because of programmable forwarding in the switch, in the router, in the DPU, we're going to be able to be much more evolutionary, like incrementally evolutionary. Is that a fair statement? Oh, without doubt. I mean, I think we're entering a period of networking that is incredibly exciting. If you think of that uh, that entire pipeline from the host OS through the NIC, the vSwitch, whatever is running there and accelerated by the NIC, all the way through the switches, all the way to the other end, mm. all being programmable in a consistent and coherent way. Just think about what will happen. Mm. Most of it, of course, we'll never see because it will happen as proprietary ideas that, that people are doing because they understand the problem best and they're the ones best suited to do it. I've seen some glimpses of this so far, but I think we're going to see a lot, lot more. And the, the thing that's really interesting about this is that it lifts features and protocols up and out of fixed hardware that had to be defined by chip designers yeah. up into the hands of software programmers at the companies who are running the networks. Mm -hmm. And so this is absolutely how it should be. Because of that, you get the ideas being adopted, as you say, potentially evolutionary and incrementally, sometimes revolutionary and completely off, <laughs> off the wall. Yeah. Um, I've yeah. seen I've seen people running, you know, versions of IP with different length of addresses, neither neither the 32 of IPv4 or the 128 of, of IPv6. Why did they do it? Because they could. There was that happened to fit with what they were trying to do in their environment. Well, I've always subscribed to Jeff Houston's view there, where he says if you add the port address to the to the IP address, you actually have a forty-eight bit address. There right? you go. <laughs> which is a fairly, which is an illustration of that idea. It's not quite the same thing, but it is yeah. uh, something in that area. I I do wonder, however, as we see the control, so all of this flexibility and this software programmability shifts a lot of control away from an industry where we've always looked to the vendors. Like 10 years ago, when you talked to a telco or a mobile co, they said, well, my vendor does all that and I'll just take whatever they do. And now what we're seeing is that the telcos and obviously the hyperscale clouds, the mega clouds are saying, no, we're going to take control of this and do it ourselves. This transition in control, I don't know if this is your area of expertise, where the vendors used to define the allowed networking behaviors are now being driven much more broadly. We're seeing the vendors define what works for them, and then we're seeing customers define what works for them. Is there a tension there that's unresolved, or do you think it's just we go back to the evolution? It's just something that will evolve over time? If we were having this conversation in 2006, 2007, mm. then that tension would have been 100% about the hyperscalers. Were they going to disaggregate the networking equipment and build it themselves or not? And now, now when we when we you know look forward and, and until today, all of the top 10 or 15 hyperscalers, big data center companies in the world, they all make their own networking equipment. They buy merchant silicon, they mm. program it for themselves, a Linux-based switch operating system, and then code which either they've written themselves or drawn from open source like Sonic or FBOS. And then they have uh, adopted and then and then uh, customized that to meet their needs. So this has been a massive revolution in the way that networking equipment has been built. And for them, yeah, it was about reducing costs, but it was primarily about getting control. They wanted to have control over the features so that they could make the networks more reliable at scale and more secure at scale. This is primarily- I, I sort of saw it as flexibility. So with these programmable pipelines, you get choice, you get to make secondary choices. You don't just get to make one choice and live with it for a decade. 
or two decades, yes. right? Yes, but it, the problems that the yeah the flexibility that you need, uh, the, the flexibility that you need gives you the ability to make it more reliable and more secure at scale because you're solving problems that three or four years ago you didn't know you had. Now you have them because of the scale that you've now reached. So for them, hmm. they they have learned as they've gone and then they've changed and modified, and so they're doing regular updates to the the, the control code. They've really taken control of the control plane yeah. from yeah. the equipment vendors. And yep. so for the data yep. center companies, game over. This happened a long time ago. Never going to go back, right? So that's pretty That's pretty clear. The question that you asked, though, was what about the communication service providers, the ISPs, the mobile operators, those that run the public and the mobile, the mobile internet? And you know, for them, this is a harder change. The data center companies, the hyperscalers, they had armies of software engineers who could take over this software. They were well-placed to do it. And they they're had well a great They're well-funded to do it as well. And they're well-funded to do it. <laughs> and also... It was growing at such a scale. Yep. Right? And so if you look inside one data center, data center today, it has many, many times the bisection bandwidth of the entire public internet. Mm -hmm. So they were operating at a scale that the internet service providers had never seen. So they had to solve this problem for a question of survival and a, and a question of continuing to serve their customers. The internet service providers and the mobile operators came along a little bit later and said, hey, uh, we need some of this too because we're, you know, uh, feeling the pressure of expensive equipment that we can't change, can't modify, and we want some of that goodness that the hyperscalers have been, been able to build for themselves. So they have come along. Um, you know, I'm sure you're very familiar with what some of them have done with with AT and T and Verizon and Telefonica and Deutsche Telekom, yep. who have gone in in this direction, China Mobile, and so there's been a lot more sort of softwareization control of that control plane that's taken place. Now, if you're listening more. to what three, two, if you're listening to what Nick just said, and you say I'm not seeing any of that, that's true because a lot of what he's referring to is actually happening behind the scenes in pilot projects and um, certain networks, test beds, and uh, first generation networks. And you might not have heard of these projects because they kind of haven't gotten into the public notice. Is that right? It depends where you're looking, right? Yeah. So the, uh, if you well, go I to, guess what I'm trying to say is there's no marketing dollars behind that, right? If you go, any of your listeners go to the Open Networking Foundation, ONF, and look at the trials that they've been doing, they're very open, they're very public. They've been with a number of other open source organizations as well. But you're absolutely right. Most of it has been pilot programs up until now. Um, it's sort of early stages. So in terms of the software, is taking over the software that controls the network. But if you look at network function virtualization, NFE, that hmm. has been going on for, for quite a number of years now and uh, out towards the edge with 5G. A lot of the 5G L1, L2 processing is nowadays done in software on regular CPUs. And so there's been this introduction of software and, and the definition of behavior by software in ways that were just not possible before that has given that ability for those who own in the network to decide how they work. And this is what it's all about. And this mm. is what I've devoted in the last 10, 15 years of my life <laughs> is to moving that, moving that control yeah. from... The, in a sense, the equipment vendors. It's not. I don't have any anything against the equipment vendors, but it was, it was moving it from them into the hands of those who own and operate the networks because they're the ones that know best, right? Yeah. They're well, the, the vendors were the the people who operated the networks relied on the vendors to interpret what they needed, and it went through this, you know, that Chinese whispers or the Russian dolls 
depending on, you know, that idea that I would tell you what I want and then the organization would try and translate in to a feature or a product that you would buy. And by the time it went through that loop, it came back in the wrong, it was just not what you said, what you asked for. And, and it took a long time. And it took a long time. Oh, so, years and years, you know, I yes. I think there are some, some classic examples of, of not only was it wrong, but it was many years too late. I always like to use the example of VXLAN. So VXLAN, which, which was a new feature being introduced into data centers, first defined by Cisco and VMware in 2010. And because it involved a change to an ASIC, it took four years before it showed up in a, in, in, in a product. Why yeah. was that? Yeah. Because it was fixed function and they all had to agree because somebody had to make the decision to invest about $100 million in changing the ASIC in order to be able to support that feature. Once it's programmable, you just go in, in, in the case of a programmable uh, switch yeah. like Tofino, you modify your, your P4 code, you run the compiler, and you're off right immediately. It can take you I was going to go just- back a bit further and say MPLS, which made nobody happy. It was basically an overblown v- VLAN tag, right? That's how I think of it, right? It, the difference between a VLAN tag and an MPLS tag is zero. Just one's for a frame and one's for a packet. And the complexity behind what they're trying to do with an MPLS tag makes no sense in the modern era. I guess I'll I'll get off that hobby horse because otherwise I'm going to ride around and look stupid. We pause today's podcast discussion for training talk with heavy networking sponsor CBT Nuggets. I care about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I started going all the way back to 95. I began my IT infrastructure journey learning Novell stuff. And over the years... Training's never stopped for me because sometimes I'm going for cert. Sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new, but I am always learning something to deliver the best networks that I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nuggets specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware. Thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, which which is not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. For example, all of you that are getting into network automation now, CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I have been reviewing the DevNet Blueprint material from Cisco. I can tell you, you are going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them. DevNet material, it's not like learning a new routing protocol. It's learning how to manage infrastructure as code. And if you're a traditional ops person, that's really what I am. It's a whole new way of thinking. There's so much more than DevNet training there at CBT Nuggets. I've spent some time with the interface, digging through the catalog. It's easy to navigate. I sampled several videos. The audio and the video quality are excellent, and the instructors are easy to understand. They are personal. They are engaging. They are not formal and boring, and some some of them even wear a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material with virtual labs and accountability coaching. Now is a great time to sign up for CBT Nuggets. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking to take advantage of their seven days free trial offer. Try it for a week. See if you like it. Commit if you do. Cancel if you don't. Seems fair. cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking for seven days free. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. And now back to the podcast I so rudely interrupted. One of the things that I'm a big fan of, I am uh, partially trained as a as an engineer, like with a formal education, and I learned a lot in my electronics engineering about control feedback loops and that ability that you should be able to do something, you monitor the result, and then you feed that back into the next iteration. So standard mechanical engineering. 
I've been watching formal verification for the last five years and just thinking this is an absolute innovation. It's a transition for us. You've been heavily involved in that. Where do you think formal verification is going to go from here? I'm going to leave that question fairly open so you can leap in wherever you like. We, we have to step back a little bit and think about where this is this has come from, because I think mm-hmm. once we can see where it comes from, you can see it's kind of inevitable. Now, in other areas of engineering, software engineering, the ASIC and chip design world, uh, verification techniques are aplenty, right? They're, they're just the essential bread and butter of, say, the semiconductor industry. If you design a chip, you start at a high level in something like Verilog or VHDL. And then as you go down towards eventually the, the, the layout and the, and the transistors, at every layer of abstraction that you go across and every boundary that you go across, there's a tool that will move you across that boundary. And then another one that will check that that tool did the right thing. Mm. It will check against a set of properties. Did you actually have design rule uh, violations? Did you actually break the intent that you originally encoded at the higher level? And so we do that in a way to make sure that when we we put $10 million into building that chip at the bottom, that it actually reflects the original design at the top. And there's been this wonderful set of design tools that are based on essentially Boolean algebra and uh, everything built on top of it to make sure that that is, uh, that is correct. So what, let's go and look at the networking industry. If you look at the networking industry on the control side, people talk a lot about intent. What is intent? Intent is the desired behavior for my network. This is how I'd like my, beha- my network mm-hmm. to be. And if you look at that at the top, it sits generally above what we would call the control or management plane. It's a description of the behavior that I would like. And as we go down towards the network in the past, you'd have to sort of fit this into the specifics of data sheets that were, despite the, the, that were described by the equipment vendor who then had to look at the data sheet that was given to them by the chip vendor. And the chances of it actually doing what you'd originally intended were pretty slim. Yeah. You didn't have any flexibility over it. Nowadays though, if you start at the top with a specification and then you compile all the way down to the behavior that is happening in the forwarding plane, you can now verify across each of those layers of abstraction. We can't actually verify across every layer of abstraction today, but there is a lot of work that's going on mostly in universities in trying to figure out how you verify the behavior at a particular level. I'll give you one example, and that is Take a look at the forwarding table entries in a switch, a router, a firewall, or a load balancer. Those entries in the switch tell you what that network is, how that network is going to behave. If you know the protocols, you know what it means to have an entry like an IPv4 prefix, you can follow it through through a whole network and say, I now know what this, this, this network is going to do. If you lift out all of that state by reading it from that equipment, you can then say, aha, I can see that there is a loop over there or an area that's of the network which is unreachable and so I've got a black hole over here. Or I can see that this particular host over here, which should be communicating with that server over there, they actually have no way of reaching each other. Hmm. So all of these kinds of properties you can formally verify and see whether they match your original intent. And so there have been a number of companies uh, probably familiar with Veriflow and uh, and Forwards who have looked at taking these ideas and turning them into a verification technique for a network as as a whole. Cisco has a product in the space as well. There will be many more of these over the next. Well, there's only three. I think one of the things that distresses me is that there's only three. Cisco has a tool. I can't recall the name. I do apologize. 
Um, and then there's Forward and Veriflow, which is now owned by VMware, which is part of their vRealize Network Insight. And why only three? Why not more? There should be dozens of these formal verification companies because the math that underlies these and a formal verification math is, as you say, based loosely around Verilog and has been well understood for decades. So the, the the underpinnings for the software architecture and the math that you need to program into your algorithms is just, and I mean, that's not to denigrate these companies for making the software commitment to building these apps, but why is there not more? So at the layers above the level that I was just describing and the ones mm-hmm. that they operate at, everything above that is conventional software. And the, the move to let's broadly say software-defined networking, but even broader than that, the ownership of the software by those who own and operate the network, that trend has allowed them to look at that software as a whole and say, can I run these familiar software engineering tools and Mm. and checkers and testers that have been developed for the computer industry? Can I run those to see that the code is in fact doing the thing that I intended it to do? And so they've been able to bring that to bear on their control planes and programs that run on top of that control plane in a way that was never done before. This was never done to my knowledge by the equipment vendors when they were developing their systems because Mm. they were doing them in isolation, not for the actual control of a network as a whole. So that's what's happened above. Below that, below that sort of what are the forwarding table entries, we're down in the realm of the programmable forwarding. And this is changing very rapidly. And so it's a little early for those tools to be available, whether it's commercially or just as Mm. part of buying the chip or buying the box. There are some to look out for. Uh, There's a tool my good friend and colleague Nate Foster at Cornell had developed called P4V. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of verifying the correctness of a P4 program, um, which is taking it, you know, taking against oh, a, a, a specification yes. and checking whether it's actually doing what you intended. Because if someone is going to modify the forwarding behavior and you get that wrong, clearly there will be bad consequences. So you want to actually check could be and catastrophic. Test yeah. The blast radius could, could be. be. Right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so these tools are in sort of in process of being developed. Some of them may appear as commercial tools. Some of them may appear as they just get tacked onto the, comp- the P4 compiler that you get with, a, yeah. get with an ASIC, right? So one of the challenges that I see formal verification addressing is something that's fairly endemic to the industry. We've got this SDN sprawl. We've seen software-defined networking become not quite ubiquitous, but become the de facto way forward. And I think we're seeing vendors come along and say, well, now I've got SDN Wi-Fi, I've got an SDN LAN for the campus, I've got SDN for the data center, and I've got SD-WAN, of course. And increasingly, I've got SDN for my firewalls and SD, and I've got apps for all of these things. We've got this sprawl, and I do see formal verification as being about the only way we're going to stitch that back together into one network instead of this islands of, like we've gone back to where we were in the 80s where the LAN was the LAN and the WAN was the WAN and never the twain shall meet. I do think that if we wind the clock forward 10, 15 years, Hmm. what we're going to see is networks of many different types cloud managed in a consistent way. So for example, if I'm you know, running a, a, a enterprise style network consisting of switches and Wi-Fi and 5G, probably more than five, the number will be more than five at that <laughs> point, but 5G uh, base stations, maybe I'm running a pri- private enterprise CBRS deployment yeah. um, at, my, at my campus. 
I can imagine all of those being managed in a consistent way. We have a project actually going with DARPA that's called the Pronto Program that's uh, at Stanford, Princeton, Cornell, and the Open Networking Foundation to build and deploy and demonstrate a cloud-managed, consistently controlled and managed system right. that operates right. in this in this manner. So it's end-to-end programmable, top-down because of the control plane, all open source using the ONOS system from ONF, and then using INT to look at and measure the individual packets and then try and provide a means to check the packets against the original intent on a packet by packet basis. Okay, and right. then if we find errors, try and close the loop and uh, provide a control system as you were as you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, we're trying to do this. It's experimental at this experimental, stage. Experimental, but you're yeah. but you're throwing the ideas out there. See, yeah. to me, it's there's part of me that wants to believe that we only need one network, and there's another part of me that realizes that there are reasons why we might actually have multiple networks that we have to stitch into a unified whole. And I'm not sure what the future looks like. And I'm wondering if you have a view about that. Is it possible that we could just have one unified network instead of these multiple different physical technologies? Is it not all just one network and they all use the same technology everywhere? I think this is going to be an incredibly exciting decade ahead of us, actually, because yeah. I think that question is going to be answered and it will be answered by uh, sort of business and economics rather than the technology. And it all going to come down to, I think, the way in which first the blending of the cellular network with the wired network. And that's happening, of course, through 5G and private yeah. deployments, et cetera. And clearly that's, that's happening already, right? 5G was the first of the cellular networks really designed to look much more like the internet was designed and the internet equipment. For the people listening, uh, the key thing about 5G is that everything's IP, whereas 3G and 4G had a lot of legacy protocols where the voice was still carried in voice packet signaling and things like that. Whereas in 5G, voice is now just a SIP session running over the top. Not exactly entirely true, but close enough for the for the point. 5G is truly native IP right the way to the edge of the network, even down to the digital signaling processing. So when they read the signal coming off the antenna, it gets converted into IP packets almost straight off the back of the radio system. That's not entirely true, but it's a good metaphor. And if you think of the way that a Wi-Fi network is typically handled today, you take a Wi-Fi access point, you plug it into a piece of wired networking equipment, whether it's a switch or a router, and then with a bit of management software, you can actually make it all work as one. And it's the, you, you know, you'll have users who are connected through both means. In future, it'll look a lot more like that with the cellular network. A base station will be a simpler device. Some of them will be disaggregated. Some of them will be serving large areas and therefore more complex, but they'll be plugged into the wired network. And they're sending, as you say, they're sending and receiving IP packets. And so they fit much, much more Co- coherently into the in, into the traditional uh, wireline networking as we know it. This provides the opportunity from a technical point of view to manage and control it as a whole. It all comes to look very, very similar. It's all software defined under the ownership of whoever owns and controls the network. As to whether it's a single owner and a single operator, so it will depend <laughs> on a lot of tussles yeah. and, and, and battles that will take place. One view is that the hyperscalers, as they grow bigger, mm. will take over 
over a lot more management of things at the edges. And we see this with, you know, outposts, et cetera, as more moving out towards the edge. And then they become perfect locations for running things like uh, 5G workloads and uh, IoT uh, workloads yeah. out towards the out towards the edge. Huh. Another, another one would say that there will be specialized companies that will be very good at doing this that will step in, perhaps growing out of the mobile operators. And so that you will see all of these categories all looking for this uh, for, for this piece of the sort of piece of control of the of, of the network. And you know, I don't know what way in which this is going to go. It's going to be certainly very interesting. And my guess is that we'll see a blend of all of the above. Right? And well, I think we'll go through a blend of all the above until one of them becomes ascendant. I believe ultimately that networking is not a diverse ecosystem. Ultimately, it's a um, an ecosystem where there's only a few winners, because homogeneity across the across the application suite is actually a value. Having diversity is not necessarily a, a fine principle. I think it's certainly the case for people who are not in networking. They look over the mm. wall and look at what we're doing and saying, why is it this complicated? Mm. At the end of the day, you're building plumbing and all I care is I stick something in at one side and I want to pop out at the other side, mm. right? And uh, so why is it that we as an industry have made it all so complex? Now, we know that that's a gross simplification and that we've put in some complexity for history, for legacy, for reasons that probably don't hold anymore. But we've also put it in there because of the security and reliability needs that is not obvious to someone who's looking at it for the first time. So some of those things will be pushed out over time, but I do think that the networks of 15 years in the future will actually be simpler than they are today. It's the thing that will make it complex is all of the machinery that is sitting around it in order to keep it going, to make it more reliable, to heal problems more quickly, and to detect failures in a way that a human couldn't What a detect. perfect segue to my next point. I watched a presentation that you gave, which is on YouTube, and I'll include a link. It's at the ONF. And I saw a contentious question where you said, how do I get the humans out of the way? And you're actually saying to the audience, how do we make SDNs work? And you put a slide up and you said, with SDN, we will formally verify that our networks are bathing correctly, we'll identify bugs, and then systematically track down their root cause. And your stated goal was to get humans out of the way. That sounds a little uh, contentious. Do you want to explain that out a little? <laughs> <laughs> I could just imagine the sort of the, uh, the, the hackles rising of people who have spent their years, yep. uh, uh, their, their careers training on, on how to operate and debug networks. And there is an immense skill mm. that is involved in doing that. And so what I was describing is something that uh, I would be the first to admit is somewhat aspirational. And that is to take a lot of that expertise and knowledge and turn it into something that can run automatically quicker, more consistently, without there having to be so much sort of huddling in conference rooms trying to figure out what the heck's going on with the network so that we can actually debug it before we lose millions of dollars. And I think it's because the stakes have raised. The stakes have raised in a couple of ways. First, networks are thousands of times bigger than they were before. Yeah. I mean, just you know, stick your head inside a data center it's clear, right? They've, they're just on a scale that humans can't really comprehend. And the amount of money that's at stake is much higher than it ever was before. So having something that has an outage, which could be minutes or hours, is just not possible or not, 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 not an option anymore. If you've got a, uh, I don't know, a, a stock exchange for which you don't know whether it's going to go down for minutes, hours, or days, and we all know that that has happened even just in the last few years, 
we got to the point where we shouldn't be allowing that to happen no, anymore. But the world didn't so end. So what does it take in order? Every time somebody says, yes, well, oh, the stock exchange can't crash, you go like, but it does. And the world didn't end, right? <laughs> and there's all these people getting all like bent out of shape and throwing massive wads of money around without actually examining the core business issue, which is the stock exchange has broken down hundreds of times over the last four centuries since they were invented, right? For whatever reason. Sometimes it involved people, you know, war zones or whatever. So with, without getting into a sort of an economic debate, yeah. what I, a debate of economics, what I would prefer to do is say, there is for sure a lot of money at stake. And so these are companies with with an awful lot of business that's that they would consider at risk. Yeah. And so they're willing and able to put a large amount of money into automation. Instead of, of being network. dependent on so Bob and Joe. Because what we have today is with the, yeah, on the so, internet, we have these senior figures in the in the big telcos who have each other's mobile phone numbers. And when something really goes wrong, these people talk to each other and fix the problems yep. of BGP, right? Yeah, and and is right. that what you're referring right. to? So that would be one example. Mm -hmm. It would also, I'm actually, the, the ones that I'm more familiar with or experienced is, you know, when visiting people who run big networks, whether they're internet service providers, data center companies, or financial institutions, and then you arrive and they say, ah, the person you came to visit can't meet with you right now because no. something happened. And then you find out later that they were drawn into some emergency situation where they would typically bring together the people that were involved in networking, compute and storage, and they put them all in a room and say, you figure it out. Within a few minutes, typically you find that the compute folks are reproducing the error yeah. because they have all of the means to do so. The storage people, generally it's a simpler part of the problem. Fingers normally go to the networking folks and say, you can't reproduce the problem, so it was probably yeah. you. And it turns out, usually it isn't. But the thing is and that the, 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 the lack of ability to see, modify, reproduce, uh, and, and therefore recreate the problem and find out its root cause, the, it's just because we don't have the tools to do it. This is the mean time to innocence debate, where right, <laughs> yeah, the, right. the network is yeah, the absolutely. one tool where you absolutely. can't prove your innocence. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. <laughs> you know, mean time to innocence. So if you're going to yep. take the humans out of the equation through the use of software, and some of that's going to be automation, some of that's going to be intent, some of that's going to be configuration control, can we also take the vendors out of the equation? Because we, what we have at the same time is the vendors are desperate to get back into the critical path of this so that they can um, maximize their business opportunity, which is fine. Because, But the general challenge that we've seen or on my experience of the last two decades is that the vendors quite often want to drive a monopoly of those markets. And sometimes it derails these changes and turns a positive change into a negative one. And MPLS is my example of that. So there are parts of the, there are types of network for which you need vendors, right? I have a standard vendor equipments uh, uh, in, in my home network, right? Because I, I I could, and I certainly have the expertise and access to the equipment that I could build my own. Uh, it just makes life easier if you've got someone that's willing to stand by yeah. it, uh, someone who I can phone if there's a problem, and then will keep me updated with the software as, as time goes on. And this is true of many networks, whether mm. I'm running a coffee shop, whether I'm running a small business, whether I'm running a train system or running a, a government network, often I don't have the people there who have the expertise 
to build that software, maintain it, modify it, update it for themselves. At the moment, it's really beyond the realm of many people to do to, to do that. Where we're seeing it is those who do have that expertise, so the data center companies. And now where they meet, where, where they meet is yet to be determined. It would be natural for the internet service providers, the mobile operators, they make networks work for a living. And so it makes sense that the knowledge and expertise is in their heads, not in the equipment vendor's heads. So over time, they will they will redetermine they will renegotiate that uh, that interface between the two i don't think the equipment vendors are going to go away i think it's just a changing of the of the relationship between them and their customers in a natural way i mean i think this was always going to happen even if we didn't have terms like disaggregation and sdn yeah. it was all going to happen anyway i was having an interesting conversation with someone the other day and they were showing me this massive Python Ansible app they had that configured a fabric. And it was an amazing app. This person had done written some amazing code and put together some amazing, but I just looked at the whole thing and thought, why didn't you just go to this vendor and buy it? Do you know, it was really just like all that work and you could have just sure. bought something oh, off the shelf, right? Yep. That did. Yep, no, absolutely. And there will now be software vendors, yes. right? So there are people that will build, buy, that will sell you software that will run your network. VMware is a good example yep. that will sell you software to manage the network in the data center. And there are many other companies that have popped up in the last 10 years. You know, before about 2011, 2012, if you had said that a significant amount of my network would be managed by software mm. that is under my control, separate from the equipment, you know, you'd be laughed out of the room. That was, that was way out of over the horizon. Now we take it for granted. And uh, it's really about software and who controls and owns yeah, that software. It is. And that's, I think that's my concern software. is that the vendors have not always proven to be good custodians of that responsibility. And part of this transition to telcos and hyperscale cloud providers writing the software is to make sure they're writing software that works for them. And the challenge there is, uh, there's. I, I don't expect you to answer this. I'm just extemp extemporizing here. Is the challenge between what the vendors can do between what customers can do creates a whole new dynamic um, that changes the balance of power and how products evolve is an interesting one. I want to be conscious of the fact that we need to get a few. I've got some really questions I really want answers to. So maybe we'll move to a bit of a quick fire round here because I want to respect your time. Uh, I want to look back quickly at OpenFlow and ask you one of the questions. I put out some tweets and ask people what uh, what they wanted to hear from you. Was OpenFlow a failure? This is a topic I often hear. I don't necessarily agree that it is. I think it's been a massive success, but what's your view? So I often get asked this question too, yeah. as you might imagine. So uh, there, I think there are two ways to, to look at this. One is in terms of how it got deployed and who deployed it. So, you know, it's public knowledge that Google used OpenFlow for inside the data centers and between their data centers. And, uh, you know, certainly up until recently when they were talking openly about how they did it, it was all about uh, the use of OpenFlow, which they'd extended and modified mm. for their own needs, I'm sure. So that would be sort of one proof point. However, if you look at the industry as a whole, has it been used widely in data center networks? It was through the use of OpenFlow to open vSwitch mm. for Nasira and uh uh, and, and NSX, again, in a modified form that evolved over time. But actually, its, it's success, if it had any, was in changing the conversation. Yeah. So when we wrote about OpenFlow back in about 2007, we were writing about a means to add a external interface to switches for college campuses so that we could try out new ideas. That was what we thought it was it would be used for. And it 
somehow hit this nerve, this raw nerve in the networking industry where those who owned and operated the network said, I want one of those. I want to be able to decide. I want to take control of the software that manages my network. Mm -hmm. We had not foreseen that. And it took us by surprise. The first time we got slash dotted over OpenFlow, all of our servers fell over. We had not anticipated this. And so now actually the OpenFlow paper that was written at that time yeah. about yeah. college campuses is one of the most highly cited papers in, in computer networking because we were great visionaries. Not really. <laughs> it was because it yeah, hit right. this, this, this raw nerve of the time. And it, and we hadn't, we hadn't anticipated to the full extent. We knew that there was something there. I think to be, to, to be fair to, to, you know, what we thought was happening, we had no idea the scale. We had no idea. The, the thing scale. about OpenFlow that strikes me is that OpenFlow actually codified what we actually do. At the end of the day, there is a flow table in every device. Now, whether that's a, an MPLS tag or a VLAN tag or a VXLAN tag or a straight out, you know, raw packet flow state that you have going through, it's a codification of the reality. It was never actually an extrapolation or a, a radical departure from what actually existed. Absolutely. In fact, if you look at the the OpenFlow standard as it was originally specified, it was for capturing exactly the most common protocols, Ethernet, IPv4, ACLs. Mm. That was really what it was about yes. to start with in this match plus action paradigm. And so this match plus action, which we take for granted, and as soon as you hear it, you say, yeah, well, of course, yeah, that's, that's right. what yeah, switch yeah. does. It, it matches on a table uh, entry, and then that table entry tells you the action that you perform. But actually, it turns out it's not quite as simple as that. Yeah. And this is what we learned over the following few years because all of the switches interpret the match plus action in a slightly different way they implement it in a slightly different way and the action is all tied up in the protocol which comes from the ietf or the ieee that's wrapped up in a standard written in let's face it ambiguous english and so these devices although they're supposed to all do exactly the same thing they all do it in slightly different ways which is why we hear the stories of one equipment vendor having to match the bugs of another vendor, and we heard these stories over many years. Once you actually start to define the behavior and specifications that say it must work this way, otherwise you're out of spec, then it takes on a slightly different meaning. But what we learned during that time was you didn't just have to encode the match, whether it was a prefix match, a TCAM entry, or an exact match for a MAC address or something like that, but you also had to capture the action, which was tied up in the protocol. That's when we realized that the OpenFlow model was too rigid. It didn't give us the expressibility to say, how do you deploy something new? It was another form of fixed function. Right, and so right, that right, right. function of that time became too rigid. That's why we very quickly went to 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 of OpenFlow exactly. as we tried That's to right. reach the expressibility. And then eventually we realized we can do the whole thing with op with overlay networks which was effectively what that's right right yep. uh, uh, that was the first that was the first departure was to try and do it through overlay saying this is all getting too you know it's too much to keep changing and adding these things and figuring it out because now you have to have a committee that agrees yep. to it yep. and kind of yep. back to the old model right where you've got committees deciding what the the departure that we drove was the p4 language and this is really the underlying uh, goals of the P4 language to give you the ability to express whatever forwarding behavior you want. So there is an openflow.p4. Openflow.p4 describes <laughs> yeah. how you would process packets according to, to yeah. the openflow specification. But then you can have openflow plus Nick's special piece of you know secret yeah. source .p4 that will add that whatever I well, need. Openflow today is still used by just about all of the session border controllers. So if you're doing a SIP gateway at the edge, they nearly all of them run on OpenFlow technology to control the calls. 
Uh, I have a question here. Do you see any fundamental changes for protocols in the future? Like, for example, TCP v2 with more port numbers or something like that. Where would that come? How would that be? I think there'll be big changes to congestion control and TCP and transport, mostly around uh, low latency for uh, whether it's in data centers or out towards the edge, where we're looking for a different behavior than we were originally from TCP. TCP at this point is just a carrier of typically web, informa- web, web data and video streaming. Um, and I think that it will change uh, in, in order to match specific applications in future. Just as Quick has come mm-hmm. along as a kind of an alternative to TCP, I think we'll start to see con- uh, transport mechanisms that are specialized for video transfer. It's not particularly good for, for, for video streaming or for two-way video communications. I think it comes back to what you were talking about earlier as people are starting to write their own protocols and that innovation cycle should probably bubble out into public eventually. Absolutely. Yeah, without doubt. And, and and it will come as a consequence of the ability to program that whole pipeline from end to end. And also be proven as a success. It won't be a group of people sitting in a room arguing over the right shape of a protocol. Uh, what topics were mistakenly ignored by researchers while being of obvious import? So what's the grand challenge that we missed in the last decade, do you think? I think as researchers, we tend to think about individual algorithms, individual techniques. We tend not to think about the architecture of the network as a whole and what it's like to be the operator and the owner of a large network at a very large scale. It's partly because it's beyond our experience. And second, we don't actually have those networks that we can actually change and modify and program in, in, in the lab. I'm going to endorse that because uh, I read the research yeah. papers that get published and I go like, I have no idea what this person's doing and why why they thought this was a good idea. So there's certainly some that yeah. are like that. Um, and there are some which turn out to be brilliant ideas that have a, you know, have their place in the network. Um, often they've been actually developed or tested with a big network operator uh, that may or may not be visible at the time that the paper is, is written. And so it is a little harder, a little bit more challenging. As the network becomes more soft, you know, under the uh, under the control of software yeah. and software open source, it becomes much easier. So, you know, in work that we do, we build on top of the uh, the ONF's Ether platform. And the Ether platform, which is a real production platform that people are beginning to use, you can actually try out your ideas and you'll have some idea of whether they're likely to work at scale. Right. Now, that scale isn't necessarily going to be millions of end hosts just yet, but uh, it will be with real production code. This is something that you couldn't have done 10 years ago. So I think more researchers will start to use those kinds of platforms because of open source. Right. And open source, I think, is going to become huge in this decade I think so. as the pieces of the infrastructure of our network. Especially in the telco world, uh, with the transition, you know, with the, with the geopolitical tensions going on, Open source make will actually transcend politics and allow com- uh, some sort of sharing that doesn't involve politics and standards bodies. Uh, jumping to the next question, supply chain issues. We've seen a lot of problems with supply chains lately where chips are struggling to get manufactured. And we're also seeing problems with supply chain diversity where uh, the cost of building those ASICs, the switching ASICs and the routing ASICs and so forth is converging to just a handful of vendors. Do you have any thoughts on that? Without doubt, it's becoming harder and harder to be a startup that is building semiconductors mm-hmm. um, because of the increasing cost as the geometries get smaller. And uh, so, you know, it was uh, uh, not not that surprising, really, that uh, we're down to a relatively small number. I think there is something that will change this, though. 
uh, and that is that the, dis the, the difference in speed between the leading edge and a competitive trailing edge, mm. for example, as you, you know, if you, you remember when we went from 28 nanometers to 16 yes. nanometers, then we went from 16 nanometers down to seven. The one, next one after seven is five, mm -hmm. and the next one after five is three. So the, the difference between those will actually is actually going down over time. And so the distance between the leading edge and the trailing edge will diminish. So this has some interesting consequences. The leading edge is paid for by the very, very high volume applications, things like you know, iPhones and Android yeah, yeah, phones yeah. and uh, the, that, are, that are paying for that. And once they've been paid for, the cost of using that technology yeah. goes down considerably. And those who come along, whether they're startups, university researchers, medium-sized companies who say, I want to actually use that, then if they can bring about a sufficient architectural innovation and change where they can squeeze that much better out of that trailing edge technology, then it opens up the possibility for, for uh, innovation again on a smaller scale. I'm very optimistic about that. I'm very optimistic about that. And so that's a return to the idea in campus switching where they would use the previous generation of data center switching. And because the switches were slower, less capacity, they would be using the trailing ASIC manufacturers to get the campus switches out and They'd be redesigned and re-optimized for a different cost structure, but that's not a new idea. That's an old idea, just not working at the moment. Yeah, but the, the, but if you you know, I've been in the university for for twenty five years, and for most of that time, it has been inconceivable that I could build an ASIC inside the university that would be interesting or competitive with anything that's commercially available because I can't afford to run on the top. The, the fastest processes, because those fastest processes are running at two, three, four times as fast as anything that I can build. However, if the distance between what I'm doing, what I can afford in the university and what is the leading edge is only 30, 40, 50%, then with clever ideas, I can actually try out a new, perhaps domain specific architecture that will be very low cost, mm -hmm. Right, because it's been introduced on what's a trailing technology, but it's sufficiently fast to be interesting. So if it can be done in the university, it will be because that's where there will be a high incentive to, to do so. It will be affordable for university researchers. And so we'll see whole new ideas. And so it'll be back to you know, having a better idea, better architecture, a little bit like the computer architecture wars of the 1980s and the 1990s. And I think that's great, right? We'll see this in, the, in, in, in networking, we'll see it in AI, we'll see it in all sorts of, of areas. And I think it's gonna be very exciting. Well, there's pressure to converge. I mean, one of the advantages of the Intel x86 platform was that it led us to converge on a substrate which was consistent. And now we're seeing a divergence back to ARM and x86. And I think potentially we'll see more general purpose CPU architectures potentially emerge over time. In networking, will we see a convergence of ASICs and NOSes? So we have the Sonic operating network operating system and Psi providing a way for us to have a consistent network operating system on top of ASICs. But equally, we have the vendors pushing back and the, the ASIC vendors pushing back and saying, we want to offer different features and we don't want you using Psi. We want you to use our licensed API that has more features and more functionality. Do you have a view of whether there's a convergence or a divergence there? Do we do we end up with a a line of CPUs that work best with this or ASICs CPUs ASIC CPUs? So I think 
Actually, I think the switch operating system question is a, is, a, is a good example of one part that will diverge and one that won't. The switch operating system is now a necessary but non, non-differentiating piece mm-hmm. of the puzzle. Right? Everybody needs something that looks a little bit like Linux. Linux is fine. You add a few extra protocols and an extra few features, you know, make sure you can do the temperature control, control the fan, mm-hmm. switch the switch the chip on, uh, et cetera, and you're and you're up and going. There's not really anything magical about that. If you look at the interface down to the silicon, though, there's a lot of room for innovation in what the silicon is doing. If you're doing fixed function, yeah. then you need to keep expanding Psi in order to be able to introduce new features. If you're doing something that's programmable, then Psi is not a particularly good fit. You could actually have a Psi.p4 and then program that behavior down into the forwarding pipeline. But if you want to expand it, so my guess is that we'll see the 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 API down to the silicon evolve and change over time. But I think the switch operating system at this point is likely to be seen as uh, open source non-differentiated. Non-differentiating. It's great because now you've got lots of eyes on it, so the quality will be higher. There'll be less security concerns about it, and this is one of the great powers of open source. So of course, Sonic as Linux, as you were alluding to earlier, everybody will right? run Sonic, yeah. but there'll still be plenty of room for differentiation. There's still Red Hat, SuSE, Ubuntu. There's variations and purposes for each one. That's right, mm-hmm. but they will all do more or less the same, whether they actually converge on a single one or there are a variety of them. You know, over time, it'll probably converge on one, and we'll see which one that is. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, the the teams that I work with put a lot of emphasis on Sonic because it's the most promising one right now, most widely used by a variety of different mm-hmm. uh, hyperscalers. And uh, but as I say, it's it's doing what you need, um, and it it. it you know, it has that transparency and that that security aspect to it. And uh, so you don't worry about the provenance of the code. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I wish we could keep, I think we could keep talking for substantially longer. And I have so many more questions. So maybe we can get you back in a year or two and do this all over I'd love again. To. Uh, yeah. I have some questions about education and so forth. But um, if you've got something to tell the audience, what's next for you? If the audience wanted to follow you or find out more, what would you use, what would you say to them? We have this fun project that's really going to be very excited, and uh, it's called the Pronto Program with DARPA. If you go to prontoproject.org, it's built on the ONF's Ether platform, and uh, we're building and deploying on a number of college campuses with 5G base stations, and then we're doing research on top to have uh, high, very, very high frequency measurement and then running verification techniques to try and track problems and then fix them in a very, very short time. And uh, You've got an, you've got an evil glint in your eyes you talk about this i, I maybe I'll, i will go over oh, i love it it's great you're having great fun yeah, well it's it's bringing together yeah. so many trends that have been happening over the last 10 or 15 years top-down programmability yeah. end-to-end programmability mostly open source happening in 5g it is all kind of bringing it together and it's a great platform for researchers and students and probably startups and big companies to try out new ideas and so i think it's the sort of thing that will lead to a much more rapid uh, innovation in future and networking and that's what it's all about and that's what's exciting to me and that's why i get up every day well congratulations on your ieee excel alexander graham bell medal i'm sure you're going to be wearing that with pride you're going to wear that into into your lectures professor McKeon. absolutely yeah absolutely (laughs) well thanks so much for your time today what a pleasure it's been i know we've gone so fast uh and thanks for listening to the packet pushes as always you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts on our network and if there's anything else that you want to know heck out the blog post i'll try and have the show notes there and some links so that you can check it out thanks for listening to this feature of the networking episode and remember that too much networking would never be enough